Uh, it is Valentine's weekend, so hopefully, men, you remember that. By the silence, I'm not optimistic. So I'm guessing it's quiet because you, the couples are sitting farther apart today. No. Um, it's Valentine's weekend. It's also President's Day weekend. That's tomorrow. So I have Abe Lincoln with me on my socks. I don't know if you saw that or not on Facebook, but uh, Abe Lincoln's on my socks today. So we're, we're going to preach together. So this should be probably the best sermon I've ever delivered because I'm doing it with Abe Lincoln. So you can't go wrong with that combo. So with it being Valentine's weekend, I don't always do this, but I did. I wanted to start out really corny because it's kind of that time of year, you know, you're corny, uh, with a few Valentine's uh, jokes for you, just to get the blood flowing here, all right? So maybe you've heard of these. If you have, you can shout out the answer or give a guess to some of these uh, Valentine's jokes here. All right, here's the first one. What did the paperclip say to the magnet? You're attractive. I find you very attractive. Good job, Stephen. Uh, He is just as corny, apparently, as I am. So... (laughs) What did one watermelon say to the other watermelon on Valentine's? You're one in a melon. And that one's okay. That was pretty good. Oh, man. He's on fire. He's on fire. Uh, here's one. Did you hear about the bed bugs who fell in love? They're getting married in the spring. That one's gross, I admit, but I just couldn't pass it up. I just couldn't pass it up. Burn that mattress. Throw it out, all right? Uh, Here's one. One wife was telling her friend, uh, my husband cooks for me like I'm a god. He places burnt offerings before me every night. (laughs) So there's that one. And then I have one that's that's, uh, sort of churchy since we're here at church. Uh, The question is, did Adam and Eve ever have a date? No, they had an apple, right? We know that one. We know how that one goes. So it is uh, Valentine's weekend, and today we're going to talk about love a little bit, or a lack thereof. So we're in week six of this series that we started the first of the year, basically called 2020, where it's the year 2020, but we're looking at how we can have 2020 vision in our lives, how we can have what I would call perfect vision for our lives and also for our church. So we're kind of looking at, uh, not Genesis, the opposite of that, Revelation chapters one through three. Uh, to see how we can apply some principles found there to our church, who we want to be, how we want to represent our community, how we want to reach them well, and also for our personal lives. If we're followers of Jesus, how can I follow him more closely? How can I follow him better? And maybe if I'm distant, how can I connect that uh, gap? How can I bridge that divide? And so we're looking again at Revelation 1 through 3. So John, who was an original disciple or apostle of Jesus, he's an old man at this time, and he's been exiled to an island by the Roman emperor for his faith. He's supposed to live out his days by himself in isolation. So while he's there by himself, he's got nothing else to do. Jesus shows up to him in a vision, in a revelation. And as we see at the end of Revelation, shows him all these things in the future that are yet to come. But the first three chapters, or really chapters two and three, we've been focusing on these seven churches that John had pastored in his life Jesus has a message for them. Now, he's not pastoring them anymore, obviously, uh, but he still has a message. Hey, here's what I want you to tell them as they continue on later on in the next century. We're at the end of the first century here in Revelation 1 through 3. And so Jesus says, hey, if you want to continue on in the next century and the next one and the next one, here's what you need to know. And so he delivers these messages to these churches, these seven churches. Today, we're going to look at the church in the city of Ephesus. 
So it's actually the first one listed, but because it talks about love, I decided to save it for this weekend on purpose. And so we'll get to that here in just a minute. First, let's talk about the city of Ephesus itself. It was one of the most well-known, one of the most famous, one of the largest, one of the wealthiest cities in, ancient, in the ancient culture in this time and place in the world. There's a lot of things about Ephesus. It was a, one of the main uh, seaports of the area, and so everything came through Ephesus. Every, every person that's coming through the area in that region is going to come through there. All the goods from around the world are going to come through there. And so they, they have trade, trade, trade. They have great wealth. They have great affluence. And so it's a large seaport. On top of that, there are three of the main roads in that part of the world that all converge basically in this city. So again, all of the trade by sea and by land is coming right here into this epicenter of this large metropolitan city. So they have a lot going for them as well. They're very cultured. Uh, They're very well-to-do. They have a lot of opportunity for that city. It's also a city that had a lot of political importance. So they're part of the Roman Empire, but for some reason, Ephesus was given a lot of leeway on how they governed themselves. So basically, Rome is like, hey, if you guys can handle your stuff and you don't cause a problem and you don't revolt, you can kind of do your own thing. There's a lot of freedom here. And because of their size and their affluence, also uh, high-profile Roman governors and judges would actually come to Ephesus to try really important cases. They would, they, that would be like the place. And so if you're like a court TV junkie, you would want to go to Ephesus. You'd want to find out what's going on at the courthouse today. Which judge is in town? You know, what, what, what's going on? And so it was a very political sort of town as well. They also, um, every May, they would hold these games called the Pan-Ionian Games. And they were basically like the Greek version of the Olympics. They're not quite as well known, but in that time and place, every May, it was like everybody would shut down everything for weeks just to have these athletic competitions from the best of the best in the world. But what Ephesus was known for the most was actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. We have a picture of it here for you. It's the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is a recreation. Uh, It's not the original, but it's a recreation that actually was built uh, many, many years ago in Istanbul. Because Ephesus is in western Turkey, and so Istanbul, it's not really close to where Ephesus was. But now being the capital, they have this sort of recreation of how this wonder of the ancient world was. I mean, it's massive. It's imp- I don't even know if we can understand this scale based on this uh, image here, uh, sort of the, the scale of this temple. And it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There actually is, near where Ephesus is, some ruins of the original temple. You can see a main part of a column there in the back and then part of a, another column there. It doesn't look like much now. Uh, But back in the day, it was incredible. And if so, uh, this uh, goddess, Artemis, was also known as Diana in the Roman mythology. So you might, uh, Diana's downstairs with the kids today, so I'm sorry I'm going to talk about her behind her back technically. uh, But So this goddess, Artemis or Diana, she's one of the top, one of the most famous, one of the most revered, one of the most worshipped goddesses in all of Greek and Roman culture. And they built this temple in honor of her. And it was, again, one of the greatest things in that time and place in the world. So this city, large city, a lot going for it, a lot of clout, a lot of notoriety. They're very important. And so, uh, as we'll see here in a minute, there is a church here that was started, actually not by John. This is the only church of the seven that John himself did not start. And but what I want to do is kind of look at this message that Jesus has for really a significant church. 
in a significant city and see what we can pull from it today. So it's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 2, starting at verse number 1. Jesus says to John, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Let me stop there for just a second. This imagery here is is from chapter 1. So both of these things, the seven stars and the seven lampstands, signify these seven churches that John is getting these messages to. Okay, these It's represented. So first what we see quickly, the seven stars Jesus holds in his hand. So what Jesus is saying off the bat here, I'm in control of my church. It's in my hands. It's not any other person's church. It's not your church, John. It's not anybody else's church. It's mine. I'm, I'm in control of what they're doing. Or I'm, I'm attempting to be in control of what they're doing. That's why I'm giving these messages to them. And then it says he's walking among the seven lampstands, which, again, represent the seven churches. So he's saying, hey, my spirit wants to be involved in what's going on. It's not just a program. It's not just a, a group that does cool things. Like, I want my power and my spirit to work in and through them as I walk among them here. So that's the imagery that we see at the outset here. So let's pick it up again, uh, verse 2. Jesus says this, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. Ouch, Jesus, come on. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But... I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he says this, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So if we're going to describe the church in Ephesus, we would describe it as a church that's lost that love and feeling. That's for you, Jeff. All right. I know I'm going to get texts and Facebook messages from you for weeks now about all kinds of songs, but that's all right. Ephesus has lost its love and feeling. So Jesus tells Ephesus, hey, you guys did a great job but it's been a while. Like you guys started strong and you're kind of off on a little whimper here. And here's the thing. It's not about how you start, but how you finish. So if this thing is truly a marathon, I don't care if you're in first place at the five mile marker Ephesus. How are you at 26.2? And he said, we're somewhere here in the middle, maybe in the early stages, hopefully. You guys were doing great. You started out strong, but now you're just kind of worn out. Now you've kind of forgotten what's going on, what the point is. Another term, another way it's termed in other translations is Jesus says, you've lost your first love. That's the main complaint against Ephesus is the main focus of this church is you've lost your first love. How appropriate for Valentine's weekend that we talk about that this morning. So there's really two main reasons that I want to focus on about why that happened or how that happened. How did they lose their first love? So the first main reason that we see here is for this church, the focus got off of the work of Jesus and onto their history and heritage. It's all about what the good old days were, how things used to be, how we, oh, and we talk about things that we, that we used to do as if we're still doing them, but we're not doing them. That's where they are stuck. 
So this city had a rich history that we've already talked about. And this church that was founded also has a very rich history. So it was founded actually by the Apostle Paul. So you can read about this in Acts chapter 19. So Paul shows up to Ephesus and he's like, this is a huge city with a lot of people that don't know Jesus. This is a great spot to kind of plant roots here and see what happens. So he actually spent more time starting this church in Ephesus than he did anywhere else that we know of. He spent over two years in the city of Ephesus starting what would become this church that Jesus has a message for 50, 60 years later. And the way it starts is kind of like, sort of like this explosion just sort of happens. Uh, And so we read about healings and miracles happening through Paul. It even says in Acts 19 that just like handkerchiefs and napkins that touched Paul, they would take them back and the person that would touch it would be healed of a disease or a sickness. Like, that's pretty epic. It even talks about a lot of sorcerers and witches coming to faith in Christ. And so what they do is they decide, well, we don't want to live this life of witchcraft anymore. And so they, they, they basically make a big bonfire in the town square and take all their books and all their spells and burn them. So the author of Acts, Luke, who is a partner with Paul and his work, he says that the value of the stuff that they destroyed was worth 50,000 silver coins. Now, what does that mean? Well, one silver coin is about one day's wage. So when you add that up to what the average person makes here in the state of Missouri, they, they burned and destroyed about $4 million worth of sorcery stuff. Like they were like, we are, we are not turning back. We, there's no way we're going to get sneaking back into this way of life. We're changed. We're different. We want to follow this Jesus that Paul talks about. We want to know more about him and his ways. And so we're, we're all in on this Jesus thing. Something cool happened, was happening in Ephesus. And then another thing that happened is when people start to worship Jesus, well, they stop worshiping Artemis. So we have this huge temple, one of the ancient wonders of the world that's not really getting much use anymore. And also, idol making of this goddess was a huge industry within the city. And so when that starts to dry up, it even talks about a literal riot breaks out in the street because a silversmith, who that's his, that's his thing, that's, he's like, what's going on? And they start talking and grumbling about Paul and Jesus, and they're messing up our pocketbook, and they're getting into our business, and they're messing up our life, and so we're going to revolt, and a riot breaks out in the street. So Jesus was up to something special in this city through this early movement of what became a church. So Paul kind of starts it, then he gets to where he wants it, and then he moves on to do other, other works and start other churches in other places. Uh, but this city, uh, the heritage continues because actually one of the letters that Paul wrote that's in the New Testament, Ephesians, was written to this church about 10 years later. So we not only have their origin story, but we have kind of a snapshot into their life 10 years later, and we'll talk about that here in just a few minutes. So then sometime after Paul leaves and he's not the pastor anymore, his protege named Timothy becomes the pastor. That's a pretty good, I mean, that's not much of a step down from Paul. We actually will talk about as well, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, this young pastor of this large church in this growing city, and he's got a lot of instruction, a lot of encouragement for him. So the heritage continues. And then after Timothy's done pastoring, John becomes the pastor of this church. So we have Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, Timothy, who was his protege, and then John, who wrote five New Testament books, are the first three pastors that we know of of this church. 
Let me just say, as a pastor, I feel very sorry for the guy that follows John in this. You got to follow these three guys? Are you kidding me? Like, you better be Jesus if you're going to follow these guys. Whoever this guy was, I don't know that he lasted very long or that he measured up, but that's the heritage that they have. And that's great. Heritage is fine. History is fine. We want to honor that. But Jesus tells this church, you're stuck there. You're stuck looking behind you. you. You started out with the bang. Things were happening. People are coming to faith in Christ. The culture's shifting. Things are moving. It's great. But guess what? You didn't pro- keep progressing. You got comfortable with that. And now this generation after you, all they can do is pat themselves on the back for a job well done 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But we're not doing anything now in the current climate. The church became stuck in the past. It was about a highlight reel. It was about a, hey, here's what we are known for, not what we are doing. Jesus says, at first you were passionate, but now it's all about looking back. So to to bring this into Valentine's Day, it's kind of like this. Imagine you and your spouse just, you know, somewhere romantic and, you know, it's just it's just very a very nice little spot there. And all of a sudden, we'll say that the husband says this because it's something that we would say, you know. But just imagine, ladies, that your husband says, you know, dear, do you remember how we used to be so in love? Oh, wasn't that great? And then we just keep talking about how things used to be and how wonderful it used to be and how the memory, and, and she's like, am I chopped liver here? Like, we're still together, aren't we? This is, you know, like, come on. But that's what happens. That's what happened to this church is it's all about how it used to be and how we did things, but we're not really doing anything right now. Jesus says, hey, that doesn't work. That's not why I'm, my presence is still trying to work in here. I'm trying to still hold on to this church and do something great through it, but I can't do that if you're always looking in the rearview mirror at how things used to be so great. So as a church, we don't want to be that way. We don't want to be the kind of church that just focused on the past. Now, we are a younger church, so it's, that's harder for us to do, which is a benefit. But still, there is a temptation, though, for us to look at how maybe other churches that we came from, how they did everything. Now, we're not saying that how things used to be are all bad, but if we're not doing anything and just talking about how great it used to be, that's missing the point. If we're worried about tradition, we're worried about things that, you know, maybe some preferences that we'll talk about here in in a little bit, that's going to get us off track, off topic. So here's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church that honors the past while heading toward the future. We want to find this balance. So we don't want to say, well, yeah, we're standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us, but we're going to push them way down so that we can look good. That's not what we're doing. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater just for the sake of having an empty tub. So we, we, we want to honor the past. We want to stick to maybe certain traditions that are still effective Maybe certain, th- we want to celebrate history of this church, which we'll do in a couple weeks, even though it's only five years. But we want to celebrate, you know, the history and culture of the church of Jesus Christ as a whole in its history. But we can't stay there. We can't get stuck there. We're going to spin our wheels looking at how great things used to be and not doing anything to get into the future. So we want to find this balance as a church between honoring the past while heading toward the future. And I would say this, for your life personally, I would have the same challenge. Let me ask you this question. How, how is your spiritual life looking? When, when you look at the condition of your spiritual life, would you say, man, things, things were great five years ago. 
Like, I used to be super close to Jesus three years ago. Man, me and Jesus, we had a thing going 10 years ago. Like, or, or are you progressing into what he has for you in the future? Because here's the thing. What got you here won't get you there. There was the story in the Old Testament about the manna that God brought every night. And he brought every single night, he brought fresh manna from heaven to feed them for that day. He said, don't store it up because if you do, it'll go rotten and be filled with maggots. And some people tried that and they found out, oh, that, he wasn't kidding, that's gross. So what the, the lesson is, God will provide every step of the way, but if you try to keep on to the good old days only without progressing toward what God has for you in your future, it's rotten. It's not really worth that much. Now, it's great. It's a great highlight reel. You should praise God for his blessings and his goodness, but what got you here won't get you there. Whatever God's done for now, it's not that God doesn't supply. He does, but it's something new that we have to keep growing and progressing in our faith, going deeper in him, not settling for, well, I'm a level 7 out of 10 Christian. I'm okay. It's a passing grade. No, it's like, how, how much more can I be in love with Jesus? How much more can I get to know him? How, how much more can he show me? How, how much more can he stretch me? We want to stay hungry for the things of God. We, we don't want to get stuck like this church did in looking backward at its history and its heritage. So the second reason, though, that they lost their first love, the second reason that this church lost that love and feeling was because they started to focus more on religion and less on action. They focused on religion and less on action. So let's get nerdy for just a second, okay? I'm going to give you two terms here to kind of flesh this out just a little bit. The words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is simply correct or accepted belief. You believe the correct things, the right things, the true things. Orthopraxy is correct practice or action. So what this church, what Jesus is saying to this church here is, hey, all you care about is correct belief. He says, I know that you believe the right things. I know that you hate evil. I know that you stand up against what's wrong and what's not correct, what incorrect you know, religion sort of expression. But he's like, hey, your orthopraxy is non-existent. There's no practice of your faith. It's all about what I know. It's all about bragging about how much I learn. It's all about filling my mind with knowledge, but not doing anything with that. That's what this church is accused of doing. Now, correct belief is important. We have to have it. Absolute truth is a must. Solid doctrine is a must. He even talks, he lists specifically this group he calls the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a lot about them, but what we do know very little about them is sort of their main idea, their, their religious practice, and they claim to be faithful followers of Jesus, okay? However, their thought was, you have to engage in all of these sinful behaviors to know how bad they really are. Like, you have to engage in them to then be able to withstand them later on. I would say that's pretty terrible orthodoxy. And the church in Ephesus agreed, that's not, that is not what we're doing. We're, going to, we're not going to jump in to then stay away. That doesn't work usually. We're going to just stay away from the outset. We're going to say, here's a line, uh, and we're not going to cross that. And so they, they rejected this teaching that was becoming prevalent, not only in this church, but we've already talked about it in another church in this region as well. So they have correct orthodoxy. They have correct beliefs. That's not the problem. The problem is they elevate that so much more over the orthopraxy that it's really non-existent. So they know what's right and they believe the right things and they have the correct knowledge and understanding. They're going maybe even really, really deep in their faith. 
but it's not expressing itself through action. And Jesus says that's not the point. So if correct belief doesn't lead to correct action, it's not really correct belief. The belief should lead to action. And if it doesn't, then it's not really worth much of anything. And so if this describes a person or a church, then there's danger that we're leaving our first love. So I want to quickly go over three dangers that are, that are pretty apparent, I think, when we elevate belief over action, when we elevate orthodoxy over orthopraxy. There's three main dangers that we might be leaving our first love. The first danger is what we call legalism. Legalism. So when we, again, when we elevate belief over action, it's legalism. Because correct belief then becomes all that matters. Well, yeah, I know not to do that. Great. Well, I know to do that. Great. But I don't do anything besides just knowing what's right and wrong or knowing the scriptures or knowing doctrine. Again, that's not bad. But when we elevate it above practice, we can become legalistic. It be, so keeping rules becomes the point. Like me being, living a good life is the point. But it's not. That's not the point. It's about me sharing the life of faith that I now have to others around me. Uh, legalism is, means that being right is more important than being effective. That's the real problem with legalism. And it comes down to this. The what becomes more important than the why. The what becomes more important than the why. So I believe all these things, but what does that mean that I have to do with that? What's the why? Well, to reach others with the good news about Jesus. That's the point of our faith. Not that I just have faith, but that I share and express that faith outwardly to others. That's faith in action that we are to be about. Legalism leads to pride and self-righteousness because we begin to think, oh, I've got it all figured out. Oh, I believe the right things, and so I'm checking the things on the chore chart. I'm doing the right things and believing the right things and fulfilling these deeds and these obligations, and God's pleased with me. And then outwardly, instead of reaching out to people in a healthy way, we come off as judgmental. Or condemning, well, because they're not at the same level I am, there's something wrong with them. It's like, well, why don't we reach out and grab them, maybe help them come up a rung or two on the ladder of faith? But usually when legalism has set in to that degree, we're like, nope, I'm fine with this distance. This is kind of a healthy distance here. If they want to help themselves, they can do that. If they want to get them, their lives figured out, they can do that. I'm not going to get dirty and help them. I'm not going to get down. I'm not going to do the work. But that's the point of our faith. It's not just what we know, but it's what we do to avoid this legalistic idea. The second danger of leaving our first love is a surprisingly very long, like when I typed this out, this word, I was like, this is the longest word I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and it's this idea of compartmentalization. That's a good Scrabble word. There's not enough letters in the whole box to make that word, and there's not enough room on the board to make that word, but compartmentalization. So a danger of leaving our first love is this idea that we lack unity. We lack love. Because what happens with legalism is, at first, we'll talk about this in a second, uh, it pushes people on the outside away, but also what it begins to do as it grows is it begins even people within pushing them away, compartmentalizing well, you know, we, we have the secret knowledge about Jesus, and you other Christians don't have what we have, so you're not as good as we are. We begin to become cannibals, Christian cannibals, okay? Not cannabis, that's different, cannibals, okay? Christians, unfortunately, are one of the few things in the world that eat their own, 
And it comes from this idea of legalism that leads to compartmentalization. We begin to fight within ourselves. We, we try to figure out who's more right, me or them? Who has more knowledge, me or this other Christian? Like, it's weird that we do that, but, but we can do that if we're not careful. We'll ask questions like, do you meet my standard of holiness? Do you meet my standard of righteousness? Like, if I made a chart here, how high would you score? We begin to say things like, my way may not be the best way, it's the only way. Like, if you don't serve Jesus like I do and in the way that I do, well, then you must be wrong because I've got it all figured out. And it sounds very pompous to like, who would do that? But it happens all the time. There are so many Christians. I'm not saying this room. I'm just saying there are so many Christians that you probably know some. Maybe you've even been like me. You've been one of them at times where you think, I've got this thing figured out, and they just don't have it figured out yet. They're just doing it different, and that's okay. Like they're just, They have their own flavor. That's okay. So we begin to compartmentalize each other. And for this church in Ephesus, the warning signs for this had been there for a long time. Because as you read the... First of all, Ephesians. So just within 10 years, Paul is warning them, hey, guys, I'm, I'm hearing things and seeing things that should not be. And so you read in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4, he focuses hard on unity. He's saying, hey, you are one in Christ. You're many, but you're one. you got to figure this out. In chapter 5, he has a whole section that's titled Walk in Love. Why? Because they're starting to crack. They're starting to compartmentalize. They're starting to lose this unity from this sort of one-upsmanship spiritually. This legalism is getting in and causing these rifts. And then when Timothy is the pastor here, Paul in 2 Timothy 2, he gives him this encouragement. And he's pretty strong here, uh, but it's, it's, it is a personal letter to the pastor that he's going to then try to deliver to the people. So here's what Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 16. Paul says, remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. So, Paul is seeing and hearing, probably from Timothy, hey, I got like a church split happening here. Like, this is not going well. Why didn't you tell me these people were crazy, Paul? This is not fair. I didn't have proper warning. And Paul says, hey, I had the same issue. You got to beat it down with a stick. Like, you got to tell them. We got to stick together. And so he said, hey, Timothy, you're the glue here. You got you, you to focus in and try to keep this thing rolling, keep them together. He says, hey, you're on the same team. He says, your, your arguments are useless and they will ruin you. Uh, your worthless and foolish talk leads to godless behavior. Because who's on the outside looking in at this group saying, that's a healthy crew. Yeah, I want to be a part of that. Now, they're not saying that. They're saying they are more messed up than I am. Like, I'm, I may not be okay with God, but I'm not going to get okay with God with them. So I'm going to stay away. I'm going to find the church down the street. So Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, you, you got to keep them unified, bro. you got to keep it on here. You can't have, let, let, let them destroy each other. And then later on, uh, John, who, wrote, who got this revelation, he also writes a letter. He writes actually three letters. And it would be assumed that it would be go, go around to at least his churches, if not more, in the region based on who he was. He has similar language here. Here's what he says in 1 John 4, starting at verse number 7. John says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. 
But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We love each other. This is verse number 19. We love each other because he, that's God, loved us first. Now, here's some strong language uh, from John. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believer. So, John's is in the same vein as Paul in Timothy years later. It's the same sort of the fracturing is starting to happen because of this lack of first love. It's what it stems from. The focus is not on the mission. The focus is not on the purpose of the church. It's about our accomplishments. It's about our knowledge. It's about our beliefs only, not about what we're doing to make a difference. And so he's, you probably heard of the holy wars from the, from the Middle Ages, right? What we have here, what's being described is what I would call a holiness war. It's within the church is fighting itself. And we even do this today with different churches in the same city. Well, they're not doing that the way I would do it, so they're wrong. Or they have this belief. Now, if it's an incorrect belief, that's one thing. If it's a stylistic preference, that's a different thing altogether. If it's a minor doctrinal thing, we can agree to disagree on certain things. Now, if it's like, you know, Jesus wasn't, you know, like sinless, we're going to have to have a conversation there, okay? Like if it's like he didn't die on the cross for your sins, probably not a Christian, so I'm not going to call it, like we're, we're going to have to have a conversation. Like if it's about secondary things, that's, I mean, we get so caught up in some of those sometimes. I know that I do sometimes myself. Like, oh, I don't know. We don't believe the exact same thing. That's okay. If we have like the core main huge things down, there's a lot of other secondary things that we can just say, nah, we're, we're going to still work together for a common Cause We don't want to fracture and splinter uh, the church overall because of a minor issue. We want to work toward unity in love and avoid being compartmentalized. And then the third thing as we start to wrap it up today is this. The third danger of leaving our first love is the ultimate danger. That is insulation. So if you have like a thermos or, or a, you know, anything that like for your lunchbox or like my kids have, it's insulated. So if, it's, if the thing is inside is hot, it's going to keep that hot and everything else around it the same temperature. If you put something cold inside, it's going to insulate to keep it cold and so it doesn't get too hot too fast. If we lose our first love as a church, if you lose your first love as a follower of Jesus, you, we become so insulated by our faith that it's ineffective. So sometimes we treat church as sort of this retreat from the world, but really it's kind of getting us geared up to be in the world. Like, it's not, the op- it's not so we can be trained about how not to be like them so much as it is, how can I be like Jesus to then help them become more like Jesus? And if we, if we get caught up in these other issues, leaving our first love, that we miss the point entirely. You see, this church in Ephesus used to do good works, but now they're just high-fiving their previous acts, and they're high-fiving their proper beliefs, and they're not getting anything done. Jesus says, remember the passion that you used to have and get back to that. Remember the difference that you used to make and get back to that. We're here to make an impact. We're here for people. We're here for the sake of the gospel. So as a church, let's renew our passion for Jesus. Let's renew our passion for people. Let's renew our passion for the mission and vision of what the church is supposed to do, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. As a, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe today's a good time to renew that passion for him. Not for proper beliefs only, that's good, but for Jesus. 
Not just to know how to serve him and love him, but how to express that to other people, to have that renewed passion for others in your life, in your, in your circle of influence, in our community. You see, the church is not a holy club. It's a helping club. It's a healing club. It's not how many can we keep out, but how many can we get in? It's not a safe zone for Christians, but it's a place of safety for those who are far from God to find and experience him. That's what we are about. That's what we're supposed to do, and I hope that we are, and I think that we are doing that. But it's a good reminder. So it's not like we want to be reactionary. Oh, I'm seeing these issues and splits and this lack of love and this lack of commitment and lack of passion, so now I need to address it. It's like, hey, while we're rolling here, while we seem to be in a healthy spot, let's just, let's just kind of go all in on that commitment. Let's renew that passion even further. God, can, how can I not only love you more but love others more? How can I not just know the right things more, but how can I do the right things more? So again, as we, as we close today, let me ask you these questions. How is your love for Jesus? Is it like, well, it was okay and now it's lacking. Today's a great day to just dig in, recommit that passion, that love for him. How's your passion for people? Maybe you'd say, yeah, I used to be about the mission of the church and I used to have a heart to reach people, but now I'm just kind of okay with me being me and me doing my thing. And, that's, and if they get it right, good for them. Maybe today's a good day to, to kind of re-up on that, to renew that passion for people. So if we renew that love for Jesus and that passion for people, we can be a loving, unified group that can change our community. We can have a huge positive impact on everyone around us as we Remember our first love. Remember the passion that we used to have and say, hey, I'm burning brighter than ever, baby. Like, I'm going stronger than ever. Like, Jesus, I am invested more than I've ever been before. It's not about what it used to be or how I used to be or, or this passion that has kind of died down. But no, I'm, I'm more passionate now than ever. And so if that doesn't describe us, let today be a day of renewal. Let today be a day of kind of re-upping that passion for Jesus, for his mission, and for reaching people that can come to find him and find that own passion for him as well.